the Worldcraft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, a time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. Welcome, dear listeners, to another exciting episode of the Worldcraft Club podcast. Why, you ask, is it so exciting? Well, that's because we have with us today the author of Darkest Siege and the soon-to-be-released Citadel of the Dead. He runs a Patreon group called the Writer's Laboratory where he offers free writing advice and is releasing a book chapter by chapter for just a dollar a month through it. Please welcome Ryan Will Susan. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so we're we're thrilled to have you, man. And I'm excited because you've got a book coming out really shortly, right? So yes, you want to just dive into the that? next four weeks. Four weeks, okay. Yeah. Uh, which is even less time <laughs> because by the time this comes out, it'll be about a month later. So this is pretty much going to be right on right on time. Yep, that's what I was hoping for. Yeah, that's great. Look, so uh, give us an elevator pitch then. What's the story? What is your what is your new book? So this story is, I'm pretty familiar, even though I haven't published through a major publishing house, I've mm. researched pretty significantly on kind of the hot genres and subgenres that bigger publishing houses are putting out. Yeah. One of them that's super popular is urban fantasy, which is a mm. modern fantasy setting, like the Dresden Files are set in Chicago, yeah. and they have a bunch of magic and overlaid mythology, and it's very mm. well done. Thank you, Jim Butcher. But the problem is, is I looked at it and I said to myself, there's high fantasy with a mystical setting and there's mystical dwarves and everything else, but there's no mysteries in that kind of setting. No one really takes the mystery genre and runs with it. So I took my best crack at it and Citadel of the Dead is a murder mystery where you have a person who's on the last legs of their life using their ability to see spirits to try and solve a double murder case. So what I love about this is that you kick it off and it sounds almost like a um, a pitch for like a new CBS TV show. You know, they're like, it's a, there's a kid who's working with cops and he can see dead people, you know, kind of thing. But yeah. then you put it in like a really like neat kind of fantasy setting and it changes timber of it. Like they've done, it's like interesting with like Game of Thrones. They took political intrigue and and kind of put it into fantasy, which mm-hmm. are often not bedfellows, but it got really popular because people are interested in people. And so the stories work really, really well, even though people who may not have accessed fantasy before just felt like it just wasn't really their thing can kind of jump in. So I kind of get that vibe from it, that it gives it gives an entryway for other people to fantasy as well. Is that is that a fair way to characterize that? Yeah, I, it's it's not only an entryway, but people like myself who read the genre very regularly. Yeah. One of the things you'll see agents say all the time, we're willing to take fantasy, but we don't take high fantasy. Mm. And I thought to myself, huh, I really wonder why that is. Why are so many people against the high fantasy concept? It's because they're high fantasy adventure most of the time when they get submitted. Hmm. They don't feel that the fantasy adventure genre will sell very well for a new author versus those that are already established. 
you know, they've already you think hit the market saturated a little bit. They've already hit their quota on best selling guaranteed. We know people are going to push books with yeah. these types of folks. So my thought was, why not take the high fantasy setting and kind of subvert it a little bit? Because the mm. biggest thing about mystery novels that I've seen from people like James Patterson, Janet Ivanovich, Patricia Cornwell, people that are very well understood and read in those kind of categories. Yeah. They have forensics. All of them use forensics and crime scenes as part of their literature, as part of their storytelling, for people to be able yeah. to gather information. Fantasy settings don't have refrigerators, morgues, and autopsies. It's not something that's typically in within their level of access and technology. Hmm. So I kind of thought to myself, how can I solve this information problem? without destroying the fantasy world kind of structure and having a piece of technology that's really out of place. That that's that's fascinating. So there there's like there's two things that that kind of occurred to me. And the first is that oftentimes and it is interesting you mentioned that the your uh, your protagonist can see can see the and speak with the dead. Seth and I often bemoan how in fantasy settings you have magic but the full implications of that magic are not usually realized. Um, so you'll have the ability to teleport, but they'll still have like stairs going places in wizard towers. And I'm like, well, if you were building like a wizard tower and you didn't want someone to come in, like you wouldn't just put like a chimera at the bottom of the stairs. You'd just ignore the stairs. You'd be like, well, you can't come in here unless you're a wizard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's it. and so it's like, you know, why not just create that impossible barrier? Because you can clearly do it. You can teleport, you know, or you can fly or something. And it's like, why not just use those natural advantages rather than making, you know, weird dungeons? Why not just make a gap that's too far for someone to jump? You have to teleport. Yeah. Eight. You've you've knocked out 90% of people that want to try to get, you know, that's a great security feature. And so it's, um, that's interesting to me. And, and so it seems as if you've, you've got this magic system in here that allows for a character to see the dead. And that kind of, what would you say that's a bit like a, a, um, a fantasy spin on some of the technology that people would otherwise use? Well, here's the thing. The way my magic system is set up is it's actually very, very, very limited. Hmm. In comparison to a lot of different fantasies, for example, you don't have things like consistent enchantments that humans okay. control. That magic does not forever. Yeah, it doesn't last forever unless it's wild magic, which hmm. I will explain. Though the way this magic system works is him being able to see the dead is both considered illegal as a form of necromancy. You're not supposed to interact or mess with spirits or mess with the dead. Mm. Um, particularly in a place where all dwarves culturally have ancestor worship. You don't mess with their ancestors. That's considered defilement of the grave. Yeah, so That's it's extremely a, taboo. It's ex beyond taboo. It's punishable yeah. by death because you're disturbing what some people view as final rest. The main character, his name is Zeal, he has a very different view of the dead because he can actually talk to them the ability to see the dead has happened before but the ability to talk back and forth with them is not something that's well understood or recorded 
So mm. a lot of people will make assumptions about spirits and how ghosts work, but they can't actually confirm any of those assumptions because they can't communicate with them. Yeah. I really like that. Like, um, so there's a couple of things that like, uh, Seth and I usually harp on in the show. And one of them is this idea about, um, world building really being defined by expected limitations and people's ability to see something and to understand it and to say, uh, it like helps with plausibility. So, you know, I'm trying to think of an example. Let's say the teleportation thing. And I know we don't like teleporting, but the teleportation yeah. thing is like, if you say it only goes for 20 feet or it, for example, how about, yeah, why not just take it from this? Um, Hayden Christensen in Jumper. Do you remember that movie? Yeah, saw of it? course. Yeah. So it, it was, he could teleport around and you realize there are limitations. The more mass he tries to take with him, the harder it is to teleport. Right. So. Mm -hmm. It is a feat of strength for him to like move a vehicle or something like that. But getting himself from point A to point B, he can kind of zip around and he won't get a nosebleed or anything. So when you see those powers and you see those limitations, it sets the expectation for the audience and it helps them, helps it to feel plausible. And so I, I guess my, my question would be, um, to you, like with your magic system, what, what are like the hard limitations? Cause we talked a little bit how wild magic and, and you kind of hinted that there was some involvement of spirits and uh, kind of a, a deep taboo in there. But then um, how, how would conventional magic work then? Like how so, do people anticipate magic working? Yeah. So there's two different types of magic. One is much older than the other. So there's shamanism, which is the mm. older one where sentient beings, humans, dwarves, elves, they would bind themselves to a spirit. Normally mm. it's of an animal they'd have a very strong bond with. They call that a familiar. And they would use that woodland creature's understanding of nature to cast a spell or manipulate the nature around them. So, for example, yeah. a shaman who had a bird familiar would understand how air currents work and be able to manipulate those much easier than, say, a person who's bound to a fox. That's the mm. old form of magic, the very first type that people kind of discovered together. Normal mm. modern day magic is something that came out of shaman. Shamanism is very dangerous because it's dangerous to bind yourself to the memories and thoughts of another spirit. Because if they don't like you, your memory and soul are shredded. Mm. there's a there's a huge risk to becoming a shaman that's why there's so few of them normal magic on the flip side is you can cast the spells but you have to have an innate understanding of how the science works behind what you want to do wow so, so si science and magic are not separate in this universe they develop mm. parallel to each other wow so i i like that concept um in part because it places really good firm limitations even on your shaman and your and your spiritual kind of characters who've kind of found a way to commune with animal spirits and so it's built off understanding so it sounds like a shaman who has a bird familiar as you were saying would would understand how to manipulate air currents because they're kind of borrowing that innate knowledge from the bird familiar and that allows them to manipulate wind in a way that someone 
for your example with the fox familiar, just wouldn't get. But then somebody conventionally as well could build, say, a flying machine. Uh, like, you know, we're talking like Leonardo da Vinci kind of stuff. Like they put yeah. some wings together and they're able to glide for a little while. And they might have an understanding of that. Now, it might not be as good or as sharp or as an innate and kind of gut level as the shaman's power. But they may be able to manipulate wind because they've gained some of that understanding. That's that's interesting. Am I following correctly? Yes, you are following correct. Now, the shaman has the the difficulty, the, the piece of the shaman, besides just finding a familiar in the first place, which is very difficult. Getting mm. a familiar in the first place is incredibly difficult. The huge difficulty with shamans is their mind has to be able to try and process the world through the understanding of an animal. So okay. you have a human mind trying to fit into a bird mind and they function differently. And depending on what creature you pick, the further it gets away from human beings, the harder it is to wrap your mind around. Yeah. And that's, I don't know that that's, that's kind of neat. Um, especially because it's kind of like you're hiding the ball like you're making it it's it's very you may see something that you desire greatly but because a sparrow's mind operates so differently from a man's whereas um you may find other animals that are like maybe a little bit um smarter generally or you know just are closer to sentience and you may have an easier time connecting with them but then again closer they are to sentience that the more developed their own cultures and insights might be and so they may be all over the place it sounds like you could just basically, um, you know, lose your mind uh, or 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 die trying to commune with these with these creatures. Hmm. Oh, you definitely could. That's happened multiple times because you'll have a shaman that reaches way too far, yeah, and tries to grab a familiar that's way outside of their comfort zone. Um, one of the pieces of lore, it's not in the book itself, but it does exist. Yeah. is there's a shaman who was trying to bond themselves with a phoenix, which is basically yeah. a lesser god that's immortal, hmm. and trying to fit an immortal thinking bird into a human brain did not go well. Guy caught on fire and burned to death because he didn't understand how to work with flames. I'd probably start with like a chicken if I was going to do it. <laughs> I'd, I'd like... Just something that I feel like I can, you know, I get it. It's like, you know, you lay eggs, you eat worms, like, and, and the worst case scenario then I figure is I, I, I sprout a feather and I, and I, you know, go a little bit cockeyed and start eating worms in the yard. Um, that's, that's super interesting. Like, I, I, I like that idea that you put this firm limitations on even the more powerful types of magic. There's like a, a bigger reach that you have to go in order to acquire that. And, um, but, by the same token, you also have this conventional method of gaining magic, which is extremely difficult in its own right, and it's limited to an individual's understanding. So there's there's your hard limitations. So like, um, does this this is also count for like emotional kind of like potential trauma or something like that? Like, say you wanted to inflict pain, like I think about the D and D spell inflict wound or something like that. Um you would have to have been wounded in such a way yourself or uh, had some kind of horrible memories. Like I, I kind of imagine that yeah. somebody who had been horribly mistreated 
would have an understanding of pain that would allow them to access types of magic that could be extremely dangerous. Is that is that a fair distinction as well? So here's where we get into the danger of necromancy. Mm. You wonder why it's illegal. This is why. Because every spirit and every person has this thing called an aura about them. Think of it like an eggshell. That eggshell protects them from other people's magics. Mm. Period. It's like a protective suit. If that breaks, you basically get radiation poisoning. That's what wild magic is. Okay. With necromancy, you are able to access spirits' memories and kind of rip them into your own to gain artificial understanding at a superhuman speed. And most mm. spirits are ones that die terrible, painful death. So it gives you an innate understanding of destructive capabilities that most people don't have. As a side effect, your sanity kind of goes with it. Okay, so it's 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 functionally a magical super weapon in a way, being able to access it. And um, because you're interacting with such great pain and loss, you risk your own mind falling by the wayside. Oh, yes, because necromancers, what they can do, necromancy is a relatively recent discovery. It's only about 800 to 900 years old. Mm. They had an older version of it called the Deathrite Shaman that mm. would do similar things. But Deathrite Shamans would only live for eh, a few weeks after being made because they're all yeah. and they just get poisoned to death. Huh. They just vomit up blood and die because they can't handle wild magic. No sentient being really can. It's like yeah. radiation poisoning. The necromancers, on the other hand, have figured out ways around this, much like the original magicians figured out a way around being a shaman. Differences with the necromancers is they can walk onto a battlefield, gain 400 people's worth of memories, all of which are really terrible, and artificially create a trebuchet out of magic. Mm -hmm. which is something that normally, for normal people, would take a huge amount of time to understand the physics and the mechanics and everything else. But when you have 400 people's memories worth, and they were all hyped on adrenaline, and they were all hyper-focused on the same thing, you can achieve that result in a very short amount of time. So an interesting thing could be kind of kind of like this. And this, this, is, this is, I guess, to, to, to sum this up with magic. And again, I think uh, with world building, a lot of the importance is the boundaries. Like we need to be able to understand why somebody can do something exceptional that they've done, even if we're wowed by it in the moment. So you're on the battlefield and there's a necromancer who creates a trebuchet out of out of seemingly thin air and is able to, you know, throw rocks across the battlefield. But we know that nobody else in our cast of characters can do that. And it's amazing to see. And so we're shocked and we're awed, but we're also capable of understanding it and it fits within the world. So the plausibility isn't strained and it doesn't feel like you just, um, you just were like, well, I need something to kill a lot of people quickly. So this guy's going to make boulders. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. doesn't feel like a cheap trick. And, um, so in theory, another person could learn to do that conventionally 
But the understanding that they would have to have is the feel of the weight of the rock. It would be the speed at which the trebuchet flings. It would be the understanding of counterweight. It would be almost understanding not even just at a scientific level, but it seems almost there's an emotive component to your magic that I like as well. There needs to be a sense of intention. There needs to be a feeling it on your skin that seems to have a a certain... um kind of like romantic power to it. And um I think that sets up your magic very well. It's a good it's a good series of limitations. Have have I covered that pretty well? Is that a good you, synopsis? You have. And there actually is a way for conventional magicians to learn these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. There's a pseudo religion that formed after Terran Eidolon, who's kind of what people would consider the big bad of Murarian history, he was so bad he forced international peace so people could deal with him. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's the kind of bad guy. You yeah, want. he was he the was last, so bad he took else. three warring three warring countries, got them to a peace agreement just to get rid of him. Um, <laughs> yeah. He, after he died, there was a place that was established called the Temple of the Great Answer, and magicians will go there and they will talk with combat engineers, mechanical engineers. They will learn science from people who do conventional trades so they can replicate things with magic. Yeah, see, that's that's a neat concept. I like that. It's a very practical kind of religion. Um, and so what's this seems like an intricate system and, and, and I like it because of its hard limitations, but also its great flexibility. Like you stand a chance of being surprised by what magic can do, even having a good understanding of it. And so. I guess I'd wonder, what kind of things have you learned in your course of writing out a magic system as as kind of intricate and complex as this? And one yeah. of the things I appreciate is that you've, you've explored it, like you've gone through some of the implications of what the magic does. But what's some, what's some thoughts you have about how someone might go about creating something like this? Yeah, the, the biggest thing I will tell people to consider is mm-hmm. everything has to have an input and everything has to have an output. Like you said, how there's hard limitations and there's hard inputs that have to be made. And then the second factor that has to be considered is how do you prevent them from killing people at 400 yards is the (laughs) phrase that I use quite frequently. Because if you don't put a limit to the range at which magic can be cast, it creates serious narrative problems from a storytelling perspective. If you don't put hard cap limits... For most of my characters, funnily enough, unless they are like a necromancer or something of that nature, their limit to casting spells is probably 20 feet at most. Because you have to extend your artificial, your aura, that eggshell I was talking about. Mm. When you cast magic, you are forcing that forward into the world. Enveloping part of the world is to basically part of your own existence, manipulating it, and then putting it back. So here's a question then. And the auras thing kind of answers some of that as well. I wonder if range could be built partly on understanding as well. You may be able to fairly well conceptualize your magic taking effect when you can clearly see something and you can imagine its existence in your mind's eye. But as you get further and further away, your senses get fuzzier and fuzzier and fuzzier and your ability to manipulate that thing could change as well like i i don't know if this factors into your magic so i'm just curious about this we might cut this (laughs) no it totally does because the the further away you get from 
logically as a human. Mm. When I think of, I can think of Pennsylvania. I've been to Pennsylvania before, but yeah. my picture and my sense of Pennsylvania and a geographical location in Pennsylvania is so vague in my mind, I can't truly understand it. Which is why mm. most magic is very immediate. And this is also yeah. why shamans are incredibly powerful is they can quote unquote extend their range by drawing on the experience of their familiar. They can see time differently. They see time differently. They see elements mm. differently. They see nature, natural processes differently. Yeah. So for example, um, in the book, I have one of my characters use ice to break stone yeah well they he can draws envision. on the experience of seeing through a familiar water going down and freezing continually over seasons in a cliff face until it widens a crack enough for it to fall into the sea hmm. that experience yeah. seeing those seasons of transitions and that erosion type of water freezing and thawing over seasons is how he's able to get the understanding he needs. Because under conventional human understanding, we don't spend enough time looking at the same rock in the same way to really yeah. understand how that works. We do scientifically in our modern setting, but we yeah. don't really have that complete understanding in an immediate fantasy setting where that's not a daily concern. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I like the position of uh, science and engineering in here as well. Like the idea that these very practical things can lead into a magical understanding. I like that, and the basic the basic setup that you have for your magic system to consider for anybody who would want to create a magic system of their own that they wanted to use in their world would be to consider inputs and outputs. And also, what is it that prevents somebody from just killing someone at 400 yards using magic? Yeah, those those are the big ones is what are the inputs, what are the outputs, and what is the range you can use it at? If you can answer those three questions, the rest of it will tend to play nicely for you. But those mm. big three are the parts that destroy storylines past their point of recovery. Yeah. Those so you've, three you can't fix back, you can't take back if you mess those up. Everything yeah. else you can edit out, but you cannot fix those three. Yeah, because you've created a world building artifact and you and you're stuck with it. It's just it you need to now follow through. Otherwise you've made something implausible. I like that a lot. And it's so Another thing is you, you touched on this with like three different warring nations, and I, I take it that there's quite what, what what's your governance like on your on your world? There's a lot right. of history here. Yes. So Mararia is a continent that is made up of three primary nations. There's mm -hmm. the dwarfdom is what the humans call it. I'm just going to use the human names for sake of not throwing a whole bunch of pronunciation at you that doesn't mean anything right now. <laughs> um, it's appreciated. Yeah. The dwarfdom, which is where the dwarves live. They have yeah. a hereditary monarchy. So think yeah. old England type style. Um, then you have the human territories, which is about 50 or 60 baronies, smaller baronies, and nomad roaming grounds. So there's two distinct kind of people group cultures there. And each barony is run by a baron. And those mm -hmm. barons every so often get together and create a king elect. 
an elected monarch who will be monarch for the remainder of their lifetime. The only point of the elected monarch is to represent on a large scale for diplomatic functions, such as declarations of war, international representations for treaties, and emergency executive orders if need be. So generally they'll pick someone with military experience. They'll pick somebody who is very, very, very diplomatic. That's kind of the most important function. Huh. And then the elves have an imperial system. Okay. A matriarchal How's... imperial society. How does, how, how does an imperial society work? So it's a, it's a, I, I, when I think of empires, I think of conquest. So I think multiple kingdoms operating under a single, uh, emperor or empress. Um, so like what, what do you mean by an imperial system? Can you so break that the, down? What I mean by an imperial system is if you think of something like the Tang dynasty out of China. Oh. Okay. Where you have you have one empress, and she has magistrates, and those magistrates rule over smaller sections because this is an island nation. Okay, so your your Much elves are like, more seafaring. They are very seafaring. So oh, they they um for practicality's sake, each island kind of has its own magistrate, and they're all answering up to the empress, and the empress answers back down. When I say conquering, at some point the elves had to conquer each individual island, mm-hmm. and they've had to do so multiple times because their empire has collapsed because of rebellion or famine or destruction. Yeah. Um, because there are dragons that like to send maelstroms through those islands for reasons the elves don't quite understand. The reason the empress is the empress is because she can get the dragons to not drown everybody. And that's, that's kind of been the role of the Empress, um, and mm. why they're so elevated, even if they're not the most qualified from a state perspective. Yeah. That's really, it's so, it's, it's interesting to me, like looking, looking through this, like, um, especially like, I love that you've got nomadic kind of humans in there as well. And, um, but with the, with the elves, just sticking on them for a minute, I like that you've kind of subverted the traditional view of elves. Elves are normally, you know, we, they, they're usually sylvan. Uh, they're, they're forest dwellers. And instead you went for this like naval imperial powerhouse, like inspired from, um, you know, like Eastern, Eastern empires in, uh, particularly the Chinese. And like, that to me is like a fascinating way to go about it. You know, I like, I like the idea of seafaring, like naval, naval elves. Um, so they've got their navy. Um, what, what do the, what do the humans and dwarves have? So the dwarves have obviously much better metallurgy and much better engineering because they've had to. Dwarves have only been above ground for about a thousand years. Humans okay. only encountered them 900 years before Terran Eidolon came along. So they're relatively not okay. used to each other. Yeah. They're, it's kind of a brand new concept for both of them. Dwarves have much better stone masonry. They have much better metallurgy. They also have very good fishing culture because they do underground river fishing and mushroom hmm. cultivation. They don't quite understand some of the human tendencies for rapid invention. Yeah, they're kind of, it sounds like they're hidebound a little bit. They are because they've had to be because when they came to the surface is because a plague nearly killed them all. Humans, because of their distinct land advantage, 
are extremely skilled horsemen, but they're mm. also the innovator of the three. They're the ones who like to push magic. They're the ones who are most prominent with magic. They're the most experimental and they're the most generally scholarly. Hmm. They don't so, believe they have inherent superiority over other people. And their humility gives them the ability to learn from others. Immensely so. And there's, and hmm. for that reason, the Temple of the Great Answer that is so, you know, huge for developing magic is allowed in other nations for that reason, despite being a different country's religion, because it's just wow. that useful. That's wild. Like, I like that. So we know that you took the elves from ancient China. Where where do your humans come from in this world? Because I, I, I kind of like that you've um, subverted the traditional um, sort of Western European sort of style. You know, it's usually we kind of think, uh, you know, um, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You kind of expect everyone to be to be like that, you know. Uh, who are you? Yeah. I didn't vote for you, kind of thing. Um, One Todd's throwing around souls is no basis for a system of governance. <laughs> um, I definitely wanted to avoid that. Um, humans, <laughs> yeah. fun fact, much like the elves, are not originally from the continent of Moraria. Humans migrated from up north across the mountain range that's along the north part of the continent, and they were nomadic. Yeah much more like the Mongolians or what you would say, like the early Native American peoples. They were just chasing food and resources, and they wound up in a place where they discovered horses, and they domesticated horses and became very, very, very good with them. Yeah. They had also led to, because they had such close bonds with their horses, those wound up being the first familiars. The oh. horse had for 20, 30, 40 years, and then the horse passes away, and you continue to stay with the horse over your lifetime. Mm. So those nomad, those nomad people groups, eventually some of them did become stationary when they discovered how to maintain their own normal agriculture, mm. which they kind of learned from the Alps on how to do stationary agriculture. So you wind up having this cultural divide where you have a group of nomads who decides to become stationary. And those become your kind of city-states. But the nomads had all the magical power with the familiars. So you had to figure out how to get those people to agree with each other culturally and share space and resources because they need each other. Because hmm. without the nomads, you don't have that horseman military that's able to keep you from getting run over by dwarves or elves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, that that makes a huge difference. And I like that because you're drawing on real examples in ancient history. Like there were, you know, many great uh, empires that were city-state kind of based. The bane of their existence was horsemen, basically. It's the people of the steppes that were raised on their horses were, were um, the bane of the Persians and the Greeks and the, you know, Assyrians before them. And, and it was... um that's fascinating to me that that really draws from a rich history of, uh, of conflict, you know, horses are no joke. And because your magic system's complex enough, um, it winds up where your different cultures and races will wind up with just very different forms of magic. And so you get kind of a rock, paper, scissors kind of effect where not one of them just decides, Hey, 
I've got the meteor magic. <laughs> and like, so yeah. I have to just bomb all your cities and you don't get to do anything. It's like, no, it makes sense that the elves may have some understanding of water in a way that humans, uh, humans might not, or an understanding of wind in a way humans might not. But then the humans have an understanding of, of this kind of, um, this uh, familiar magic related to their close relationships with their animals that uh, the elves just wouldn't understand. And so that even magically you could, you could anticipate an elvish and a human sorcerer being evenly matched, just having very different abilities and very different understanding of how their magics would work. So I like the way the cultures tie to the magic as well. But um, so we, we've done the humans a bit and we've done the elves a bit. Where, where'd you get your inspiration for the dwarves? Cause they're, they actually seem the most conventional so far. Of so the three. they're, the dwarves seem conventional, but their ancestor worship and whatnot, a lot of their language actually borrows from Arabic and hmm. they're much more India based, hmm. very familial based, much more Indian based where they consider ancestors and karma and reincarnation because they do believe reincarnation happens. Yeah. They were the first people to notice that spirits follow people and they mm -hmm. actually based value in their lives based on how many ancestors are looking after you, how many of your own family members are taking care of you. Hmm. So there's a, there's your immediate nuclear family, but there's also this extended familial sense where you have all your ancestry behind you and you have your ancestry of your community and you're all interlinked. You know, if you had two cousins from like 200 years ago that married each other, you could conceivably walk up to another dwarf and call them a family member and they wouldn't mind. Yeah. Hmm. So it, the, the worst thing that can happen to a dwarf is have their name and family legacy stripped from a record. So the um, is it fair to say that the 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 dwarves kind of sound like a very honor driven culture, uh, at least a very familial honor driven culture, where you would not you would be horrified to bring shame on your family. That is definitely a huge piece of it. It's not so much fame, shame on your oh. immediate family. It's shame on your ancestors. So if your ancestors yeah. accomplish something great and you do something wrong, your ancestors may stop being with you. Hmm. They may just abandon you. And that's considered a huge mark of shame. Like you get branded for that. Wow. So most dwarven criminals are called ancestorless. Because they have nobody following them. They were all abandoned for breaking the law. Yeah. The first Man. necromancers were dwarves because they wanted to communicate with their family members. I was going to ask that. So it makes sense the dwarves would, uh, would master necromancy first because they have a, uh, a culture that draws heavily upon their ancestors. So it makes sense they'd want to dive into that. I... I really like that. So one of the cool things about this is that a lot of a lot of the elements of your world really lean on each other. And I think that's important because um, so what, one thing Seth and I keep coming back to as we go through a lot of this is this idea of, of fairy cake, which is a um, hitchhiker's guide reference. And the, the whole point of it is that somewhere in the center, you have a thing you're trying to communicate. And from that thing, that small idea you you just work the implications outward like ripples in a pond. And so um I think it's it's interesting to me though 
to see the way your world has these many intricate components that all lean on each other in some way or another. And it seems as if you've, you've really explored the implications of your magic and you've explored the implications of your cultures. And thankfully, because your, your magic is, is quite emotive and is limited by people's ability to understand, it means you can tie your, your magic strongly to your cultures and make this very complicated kind of soup. But by the same token, like it's, fairly understandable like you can follow it so i ask you like what 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 kind of came first if you were to identify a piece of fairy cake a thing that that you drew from at the very beginning of your story and the ripples kind of came out of it um do, do you think you could identify one this seems yeah. again fairly intricate Lots so of leaning. for for the very very first piece of when i first started this 10 years ago was yeah. what would necromancy actually look like yeah. Um, what would necromancy actually look like was the very first initial question for this particular draft that got published my actual consensus piece question is if you only had a few days to live and no power to get revenge against people what would you do with it because hmm. the main character zeal he is not a warrior he's not a fighter he's never had martial training he has no physical strength because he's sick all the time what do you do if that is your scenario if you are a weak person on the low part of the totem pole and your only ability is to talk to dead people and that's the only thing special that you've got what do you do with the time that you have when you have people that have wronged you i I think that's interesting. I, for a point of lore, his aura has been compromised. It's right? been broken. Like, he's irradiated. Um, oh, yeah. He's been irradiated for happening. three months by the time the start of the book happens. Wow. So he's incredibly weak at this yeah, point. Yeah, he, he has got a couple of weeks, if that. Now, I, I'm always fascinated by um, main characters who are weak in some way i guess like it's in D, whenever i play characters i almost always make useless ones um i just love doing it and uh i i i by that i mean just generally characters who i just kind of like the aesthetic of but no they don't mechanically work i find it interesting in stories where characters are defined by their limitations they're not able to do the things they wish to do um, so they're left kind of having to make this, like, I, I like the way that you put this limitation on here of you've had something terrible done to you, but you have no power to commit to vengeance for it. So what do you do with the time you have left? That, that sounds like a redemption arc. Yeah. That sounds really well, powerful to me. Here's the thing that is, mm -hmm. it, it's on the back of the book. So I can tell you this, um, without <laughs> it being a spoiler, his right. goal is to find the person who killed his mother in front of him and forgive him because hmm. that's the only thing that is the absolute only thing he has complete authority over because the guy who killed his mother is super duper strong and super duper capable he's never going to beat him in a fight he's never going to get him arrested so his sole goal is to find this guy and forgive him even if the guy doesn't want it because that is something he, only he can control and it prevents the guy's crime of killing his mother from owning his life. He can't take that from him. That's something he that cannot he cannot take, take. That from him. 
He cannot be controlled by it. That kind of forgiveness is kind of the ultimate freedom from a wrong when he has no ability to extract any kind of justice. That is his justice, is to just walk up to the person who wronged him and say, you no longer have an effect on me. Have a nice day and live with your consequences. That is the conclusion that he came to. Yeah, I like that because what you've created here is um, as a world, a world with a complex political system where you can have this intrigue playing in with these powerful characters. You have a magic system that is plays a central role, but is fundamentally actually uh, quite simple to understand. Not easy, but simple. Like it's, it's clear um, and it's concise and it has, and it has limitations and you're putting what functionally is part murder mystery, part political intrigue in the middle of this tinderbox. And so that makes for a complex world. Um, man, I like that. I think given our time, this may be a good place to close. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to, you wanted to raise or talk about quickly in your Uh, world that you wanted to highlight? One thing I do want to highlight about this is that the very first book um, is a lot. It feels a lot more level and a lot more flat. There's a lot less deep cultural intrigue, simply yeah. because they're in an international intersecting city. Um, as the series go on, we will get that deeper aspect of cultures. I'm also this is the surprise I was talking about building a yeah. world anvil. Oh, wild! Public and everything. So as I update that world anvil, people will be able to follow me and follow the lore that I can't necessarily share in the book because it will weigh it down. But they may want to know anyway. That's phenomenal. That I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, it it gives it gives your readers an opportunity to engage with this and to and to look into the world at more depth, and it also saves you some exposition. (laughs) Oh, it um, does. Because there is yeah. a lot, fun fact, not everyone is Tolkien. Tolkien got away with a lot when yeah. he was, uh, because he it's was first. True. Stories don't need everything explained because characters already know that they happened most of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. like, if, if people are talking about, if you and I, for example, were talking about a war of some kind and we both knew what the war was, we wouldn't give a full expose of what happened because we both kind of assume we have a base understanding. Yeah. Fiction's not any different. But the reader may want to know about that. So on to the yeah. world anvil it will go. That's really cool. I love that plan. That is awesome. That's a nice surprise, man. So um on that note, like where can we find your stuff? So it will be available on Amazon. It will be available on Kindle. It'll be available on Barnes and Noble and for Nook and for Kobo. It will be available at pretty much every major retailer. Um that you can order books from online and so. it'll also be available on uh, lulu.com if you type in lulu.com citadel of the dead it will eventually be available there as well yeah so. that's really exciting i love that so people should be able to engage with your stuff through that and obviously we'll post the links in the show notes we'd really be happy to boost for you this is yeah. super great so i really um, appreciate it so considering yeah. you guys are my first ever interview for any book material um, I wanted to send you guys copies. Oh, so that's awesome. So uh, if I just send three copies your way, 
hardback, you wouldn't mind no protest there. I will definitely do that for you as a symbol of thanks, sir. I really appreciate the time we spent here. You have a high quality channel. Believe you're doing good thank work you. here. Thank you very much. We're really grateful to hear that. And creators like yourself are the reason why we do it. We love interacting with everybody and we love uh, hearing what people are making. It's uh, really a joy for us. With that, I'll close this out. Thank you very yep. much, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining Seth and I on the Worldcraft Club podcast. Please go ahead and like us, subscribe to us on your preferred app. And if you use iTunes, rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rating. It really helps our numbers. If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the Worldcraft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.